0: There's a an apocryphal story. It's not true. It's, a, it's an element of truth to it, uh, but it's kind of become well-known in some ways about uh, a paper over in England that asks for people to, to send in submissions for their understanding of what's wrong with the world. And the story goes that uh, G.K. Chesterton writes in with a note, what's wrong with the world? Dear, Sor- Dear Sir, I am yours. K. Chesterton. I said it's apocryphal because that never actually happened. As far as I know, what actually that came from was a longer letter that he actually wrote to a newspaper at one point in time. In that letter, he was pointing out the fact that many people say there's problems in the world and if we could just get our politics right, if we could just get our economic system right in place, then we'd be able to solve things. And he was pointing out, but that never really works. And in that letter, he says this, in one sense, and that the eternal sense, the thing is plain, the answer to the question, what is wrong, is or should be, I am wrong. Until a man can give that answer, his idealism is only a hobby. And so if you were asked the question, what is wrong with the world today? How would you answer that? And I want us to see in Genesis 3, the first answer to that question, what is wrong in the world today? Genesis chapter 3. If you would take your Bibles, please, and open up to Genesis 3. We're going to start in verse 1. So we've been working through the book of Genesis. We've worked through God's creation. We've worked through his good creation, the paradise that he made for mankind. And as we look around the world today, we say it doesn't seem like it's a paradise anymore. What happened? And Genesis 3 tells us what happened. And what we find is that this world is now fallen because man rebelled against God. And Lord willing, this week we'll, we'll look at the temptation and fall of man. Next week we'll look more fully at the results and consequences of that in this chapter. Now, right there at the beginning, we find uh, Satan coming. We talked about this last week. Satan coming and tempting Eve. Now, as a reminder, I want to go back into chapter 2 and, and read God's command to Adam. So in chapter 2 and verse 16, God said this. Lord, God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. I, I can't remember if I mentioned this last time we worked through uh, chapter two, but uh, in case you're wondering, uh, what was the fruit of the tree? The answer is, we don't know. It's never mentioned. Uh, pictures often seem to portray it as an apple. I don't know exactly why that's the case. Uh, as far as I know, the only fruit actually mentioned in this passage is figs, uh, because it mentions fig leaves later on. And so we don't know what kind of fruit it was. And I don't think the fruit really is the significance of the tree anyway. I I don't think the fruit has some kind of magical power in it. Instead, the tree itself stands as a picture. That it's a command now. That if they obey, they will understand the good and evil. Or if they disobey, they will understand it in a different way. And so God gives this command in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 2. In, verse, in chapter 3, we now find Satan coming to Eve. and He says to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Now, we just read what God said. Is that what he said? The answer is no. And really what we see in this passage in many ways is an understanding of the nature of temptation. That I want to kind of think through how sin and temptation tends to work in this world by considering the very first temptation, which in many ways serves as a model or a paradigm of temptation. And temptation is crafty or deceptive or cunning. In some ways, Satan comes and says, I'm just asking questions here. I'm not making, I'm not saying anything. Now, certainly he's implying something. And in fact, in some ways, we might even say it's less of a question and more of a kind of statement of surprise. Some have said you could translate this almost something like, did God really say that? Indeed, to think God said you're not to eat of any tree of the garden. Can you believe that? And what we see right away are two pairs of how temptation works. That temptation tends to minimize God's gracious provision. And tends to magnify God's wise prohibitions. Tends to minimize God's gracious provision. Back in chapter 2 and verse 16, what did God start with? From any tree of the garden, you may eat freely. God had given to mankind all the good, all the goodness of this world. And yet he'd given one prohibition. There's only one tree out of all this garden in which you cannot eat. And what does Satan do? Satan comes and says, well, did God say you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Some ways it almost seems as if you've had this experience maybe with your child in which you've said, you can't do this thing. And your child says, you never let me do anything. And you think, I let you do things all the time. But what's the focus? Not all the good provision, not all the kindness, not all the grace, but the fact that you've said no to this thing. And again, there's constant pushback of this kind. Really? God is this strict? Really? Your parents are that strict? Really? Your church believes that? And Eve responds in verse 2. And as she responds, it seems she's already starting to buy into Satan's line of thinking here. She's already starting to follow into his trap. In part, I think we might even say, as soon as she heard that question from Satan, she should have just kind of walked away. In part, because I actually think it should have been surprising to her that a snake was talking to her. I don't think this was a normal occurrence. In some ways, it should have been a little shocking that all of a sudden this snake comes up and starts talking to her. Certainly, as soon as the snake starts to imply this about God, she should simply say, I don't see there's any reason to having this conversation. You obviously don't know what you're talking about. And yet, instead of turning away, she starts following his line of questioning. And for what it's worth, I think there is a danger very often in our day of falling into this kind of a trap in which we start to have a conversation about something which God has already said something very clearly. Someone comes along and says, well, let's maybe talk about this and let's see if we can think about this a little bit more. Instead of saying, there's no reason to have this conversation, God said it. We begin to say, well, okay. Potentially, we begin to give in to what's being said because look at how she responds. Several ways in which she responds seems to imply she's not really tracking with what God has said. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. Now, when she says from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat, she's dropped off something God said. You may freely eat of any of the trees. She says, yeah, we can eat the trees. And so she's already starting in some way to minimize God's gracious provision. As well, she seems to move away from something God had said about this tree. What did God say about this tree? This is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. How does she describe it? It's that tree in the middle of the garden. And I don't want to read into this too much, but I think Moses is intentional in in using the titles he uses here. Notice in back in verse Uh, Chapter 2 and verse 16, it's the Lord God that commanded the man. And the Lord there, probably in your translation, is all capitalized because that's an indication this is Yahweh. This is God's covenant name. And that's how chapter 3 starts. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And yet, what does Satan do? What has God said? And in verse 3, the woman says the same thing. God has said. And there she uses the title Elohim pointing to the fact that yes, God is the sovereign majesty and yet dropping off the fact that he is the relational covenant God. The God who in chapter two formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Who took a rib from the man and crafted a woman. Someone who would be a helper that would be suitable for the man. And so she begins to follow Satan's line in which no longer is God viewed as the relational God, but purely as the sovereign. And then as well, she adds a phrase at the end. You shall eat from it or touch it. And, And this is difficult for us to understand exactly what's going on here, in part because when God gave that command in chapter two, Eve wasn't around yet. And so it's possible she never heard it from him. She only heard it from Adam. I think it's also possible God repeated it at some point in time. And so we don't know, did Adam add something to this? Or was this perhaps, in some sense, then maybe even taking a wise precaution? If we're not supposed to eat it, why would we even want to touch it? And that language is, is used in the rest of the Pentateuch to describe what Israel is supposed to do as they come across unclean things. Don't touch these unclean things. Avoid them altogether. It also does seem that it's beginning to magnify the prohibition in ways that God did not magnify these things. And then as well, the consequence is lessened. In chapter 2 and verse 17, God says, you will surely die. Here the woman drops off that surely. The certainty seems to be lessened in some way. You will simply die. And so we see a minimization of God's gracious provision and a magnification of his wise prohibition. And in verses four and five, we see Satan doing something else, a kind of, of pair of aspects of temptation that he seeks to deny God's word and he sows doubt on God's character. Verse four, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. In the original language, the, the not there is really at the beginning no. Eve says, if we eat it, we will die. No, that's not going to happen. That's not true. What God has said is simply wrong. It's not going to happen. Why? Well, because I know what God really thinks. Look at verse 5. God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He's beginning to say, God doesn't really have your best interest at heart. The focus is not on what God has said, but instead saying, I know why he said that. I can tell you his thinking. I can tell you his reasoning. And his thinking is, he doesn't really want all that you could have. He's limited you in some way. His goodness, his truthfulness, his graciousness, his wisdom are all under attack. That instead, there is something better for you. This is where we see a second pair of, of ways in which temptation comes to us. The temptation builds up counterfeit benefits and blinds us to true consequences. Because what will happen? When you eat it, your eyes will be Opened and you will be like god knowing good and evil right now you're just a creature but you could be divine you could be better than what god has made you to be you yourself can be a god and yet temptation and sin inevitably overpromises and underdelivers so I was thinking about this. I was trying to think of a way to, to maybe get this across. And I thought most of us have probably experienced going into some type of fast food restaurant. And, and they have these giant TV screens with pictures of the food on there. And you see those pictures. And what do you think? Man, that looks really good. And you order the sandwich. And you unwrap it. And you think, this can't possibly be what that thing up there was, Right? Because so what's happening? They're overpromising and under-delivering. Look at how good this thing is. But it's a counterfeit. It's not real. Then instead, there is some truth to what Satan says. If you look down in verse 7, after they eat, what happens? The eyes of both of them were opened. And what did he say in verse 5? Your eyes will be opened. So it's true what he says in some sense. And then it says they know something. And he said, you're going to now know good and evil. And so they did obtain an experiential knowledge of good and evil, a knowledge that they would not have had had they not eaten of that tree. And yet, it's not really what Satan made it out to be. Because he set up, this is what will happen, and yet it wasn't really what was going to happen. And he completely denied the consequences. It's as if, you know, the the commercials we have for drugs nowadays, in which you have a drug that that deals with a a rash that, that creates discomfort and itchiness, and then they say the side effects include, you know, constant nausea, paralysis, cancer, and death. And you're thinking, I'm not really sure this would be worth it. And yet in this scenario, it doesn't even include those side effects. It doesn't even include them at the end where the person says it really fast like they used to do it or in small print at the bottom. It's just completely not there. It's simply, it's the man who's selling you the miracle elixir that will solve all of your diseases and yet will end your life within the next week. So the consequences are just completely ignored. Satan, sin, temptation comes to us and says, look at the immediate gratification. Look at what's what's right promised to you right when you act in this way. But don't ever think of what might happen down the line. Yes, look at the person who's sitting there at the slot machine and wins a ton of money and is so excited. Don't ever think about the person who at 4 a.m. is suddenly leaving having lost Money for this next month's food and rent. Don't possibly think about those kinds of consequences. Or if you've been paying attention, there seems to be a push right now for for polyamory, and saying this is a, a rising movement in society, and a good movement in which people are not monogamous, they're not committed to just one other person, but they're in a multiple relationships with each other. And the pictures are of these beautiful people who look so happy. And yet, if you really looked at what's going on, you find people whose lives are broken, whose children are being harmed through their sexual lives. You see destruction in its wake. And it says, don't think about those kinds of things. Just move forward in immediate gratification. And so Satan and sin builds up counterfeit benefits and blinds us to true consequences. And Eve falls into it. In verse 6, we find what she actually does. When the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. Many have rightly noted, I believe, a parallel between this and a couple other places in Scripture. One in 1 John, when John talks about all the things that are in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. In many ways, they seem to parallel what Eve points to here as she considers the tree. First, the lust of the flesh. She looks and she says, this tree is good for food. Now, if you've been reading through Genesis 1 to 3 to this point in time, you've seen that word good several times. And that word good can sometimes mean beneficial or healthy. And in one sense, was that fruit good for food? On one level, yes, it was edible and probably would have provided nutrients of some kind. And yet what you also will have noticed up until this point in time, only one person has ever said something is good. And who is that person? God. That God looks and says, this is good. Or in the previous chapter, he can look and say, It is not good for man to be alone. But then after he makes uh, uh, someone, a helper suitable for the man, he can say, this is now all very good. And he can look at this tree and say, this is not for you to eat. It is not good morally for you to eat. And yet, what does Eve come along and do? She puts herself in the place of God. I can decide that this is actually good for me. They it could provide material, physical goodness. And again, we see a parallel, I think, to the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. As Satan comes to him, as Jesus fasted for 40 days and says, why don't you turn these stones into bread? Bread would have been good for him to eat, right? It's good for food. There is the lust of the flesh. Secondly, that it was a delight to the eyes, the lust of the eyes. There is a beauty. There is a kind of aesthetic pleasure. That sin rarely comes to us in hideous form. That it comes in a way that is attractive and appealing. It catches our eyes and it offers a kind of pleasure or delight. And, and again, I think we see the parallel with Jesus as Satan shows him all the kings of the world and says, this can all be yours you just bow down and worship me the lust of the eyes and finally the boastful pride of life that it was a tree that was desirable to make one wise seeing that word for desirable is the word that's used in the 10 commandments to say you shall not covet and what we see is coveting here i don't have something I think it would be good for me and therefore I want it. There's a desire I have to be made wise through this. And I think this is related to the boastful pride of life, human acclaim and glory, where Satan takes Jesus to the temple pinnacle and says, throw yourself down and have the angels come and save you. And wouldn't that certainly show his majesty and his glory and his special relationship with the Lord? And Eve allows these sinful desires to move her then to act. And it seems there's a a kind of progression or a chain of sin in some ways in this passage. Some ways it begins with the fact of her just listening to Satan, considering his accusations in any ways against God. And then that moves to her looking and contemplating. She saw that the tree was good for food. And so then she begins to desire it and to covet it. And that leads her then to take from its fruit. She makes a choice. She makes a decision that then leads to her action of eating it. It doesn't stop there because sin almost never affects just us. But the sin spreads to her husband that she gives it to Adam and he eats And in one sense, I'm tempted to ask, where did the sin actually occur? And I think the passage would tell us it's all part together. It's all a link in many ways. These steps are leading to the other, and these all are manifestations of Eve's sin. And yet we're kind of surprised in some ways, because in verse 6, all of a sudden, she gives it to her husband with her, and he ate. We're wondering, has he been here this whole time? I think the answer is yes. I think the answer is yes, in part, because of that language. He is here, her husband, with her. And that seems strange to say unless he was already there. You know, there also doesn't seem to be any time between her taking of the fruit and giving it to Adam. It's not as though she ate and then had to, hey, Adam, let me, let me go find you and give you this fruit too. As well, throughout this passage, there's actually been plurals used. Whenever Satan says that God say to you, "You shall not eat from the tree," or "You shall not sure," or "You will surely die," they're all plural. And as Eve answers in verse three, she she says, um, oh, "Verse two, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat." And so I, I think most likely, Adam's been here the whole time. And we see from Scripture that Eve is described as having been deceived by Satan. Adam seems to have just sinned willfully and rebelliously. And the God's created order is turned on its head. The God makes man to rule over creation. He gives woman as a helper suitable to him so that they might rule over the created order. And yet here we have the created order going to the woman who then goes to the man. And God's good design is turned on its head and sin now is entered into this world. And what's the initial result of sin? Verse seven, the eyes of both of them were opened; They knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. It's amazing as you consider this, that all that the tree offered to Eve, she already had. It's good for food. Did she need food? She had a whole garden full of food. It was pleasant to the eyes, a delight to the eyes. Do you remember when we went through chapter 2? We saw that God made a beautiful garden with precious gems and trees and rivers. There was plenty for her to find pleasure with as she looked around creation. Was there wisdom? Yes, there's a better wisdom. There's a wisdom from God. Yet she instead sought a counterfeit wisdom. And now they know that they are naked. And as, whereas at the end of verse of chapter two, we find they're naked and not ashamed. Now it's clear they are ashamed. And yet instead of going to God to deal with it, they continue in their act of autonomy and think we can cover this up. But the covering doesn't work. And we know the covering doesn't work in part because as soon as God comes, what do they do? They hide. They hide because they say, "Uh, I'm naked. They have no way to deal with their sin now. So a few thoughts for us in light of what we find here in chapter 3. We do see that sin and evil are real, and yet God is not to blame. We are. What is wrong with this world? It's not external things. It's internal. Adam and Eve had perfect parents. God was their father. They had a perfect environment, a perfect society, and yet they still sinned because evil comes from within. And if you think, you know, I really wish I'd been there because I think I would have seen the lie. and I think I would have chosen differently. In one sense, in that very statement, you're sinning in the exact same way Adam and Eve did. Because what were they doing? I can be like God. I can know what's good. I can know what's evil. And what are you saying? God, your plan here wasn't as good as my plan. You're sinning the exact same way that they were. And again, we're reminded sin sin seems pleasurable, but it never satisfies, that we think removing God's restrictions will give us joy and happiness, and yet it ultimately strips us of our joy and happiness. That there's a book about this called Paradise Lost, because what did Adam and Eve have? Paradise. And what was the result of their sin? What we see now today, a fallen, broken, cursed world. And yet, perhaps more than anything else, our takeaway from a text like this would be that we must trust God and his word. Because what does Satan come and do? He says, don't believe God, believe me, trust yourself. And at one level, as Adam and Eve considered God's command, do you think it made sense to them? we well, have got all this garden, why not this tree? I mean, I look at it, it looks good for food to me, it's pleasant to the eyes, it's the knowledge of good and evil, I'd, I'd like that. Why shouldn't I eat from it? And God's answer is essentially, because I said so. And there are times in which we look at God's commands and we say, God, it doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know why you're saying I need to do it this way. It seems as if it would be better not to do it this way. Now, what do we have to do? We have to trust God. Recognize my way will not lead to joy and happiness. It's his way that will take us there. And finally, I mentioned the comparison between Adam and Jesus. And yet, as much as there's a comparison, there's much greater contrasts. Adam and Eve had all the food they could want. Jesus hadn't eaten for 40 days. Adam and Eve were together. Adam should have stepped in to help. Eve should have been Adam's helper to keep him from sin. Jesus was by himself. They were in a place of perfect beauty. He was in the wilderness. They were already living as kings and queens over creation. Jesus had humbled himself to become a servant. And Adam and Eve failed. But Jesus did not. Because Jesus did not, as we'll see next week, There is hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us your good word, that you give us wise prohibitions, you give us gracious provisions. Lord, help us to see sin and temptation. The deceptive way that they are, to realize it promises what it cannot deliver, and it hides what it truly costs. It would help us to trust your word more than anything else. We pray this in your son, Jesus' name. Amen.